From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Michelle Pfeiffer sniffs out sustainable fragrances, the latest from the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, why IBM's CEO is speaking up on climate action, and what's in store at Home Depot. We're nailing it this week on 350. It's December 6, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from snowy Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. Yes, I got my first shoveling workout of the year. That's, uh, and probably the last, actually. <laughs> the last <laughs> but, of the uh, year? Oh, yeah, Of right. the season, the, I should yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. yeah of, of this season. But uh, yes, um, how is it? I know the weather's been pretty frightful out there <laughs> well um, uh, in yeah, california as well yeah i mean it's been raining um which is a beautiful mm-hmm. thing and oh, rain. Uh, okay. uh, you know we need the rain always and and even mm-hmm. as much as the rain we need the snow in the sierra which uh, got a few feet over the past few days this week and last weekend and there's more to come and so you know that's a beautiful thing if you don't factor in the mudslides that uh, result oh, from the yeah. rain after the fires so you know it's always something out here, but uh, you know, it's just it's it's all part of the the new normal, I guess, and it's certainly part of the new weather regimes that we're we're, we're getting used to here. Well, you gave you gave some great new words to me this week in your column because <laughs> you you wrote about some of the the new terms that we have to use to describe these things, like bomb cyclone, because they kept talk, they were talking about this bomb cyclone happening in the Northeast, and I was like, what the heck? I you know polar vortex I learned a couple years ago when we had that horrible cold snap here in 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 New Jersey and and other states but I loved your piece this week that kind of gave me some uh, table talk (laughs) when it comes to weather. So I wrote about seven weather terms you need to know that are all not necessarily new terms but terms that are we're hearing more and and more frequently uh, more and more regular regularly based on just the shifts in weather that is contributed to by by the climate crisis. Uh, the one that we experienced out here this week is the atmospheric river. That's just this long, 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 long tail of of, of rain that uh, extends out into the ocean. In, in our case, that just keeps pouring water and water and dumping it uh, for 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 days and days and um, sometimes nonstop. This has been this one's had a few good breaks on uh, Tuesday. We actually had sunshine for a few hours and then it's. Uh, by the time we got to Wednesday, it was back to gray and gloomy and, and, and rainy. Uh, but yeah, you know, uh, I, I'm a word guy, and I think you're a, a word person as well. And we like new coinages and usage cases, and some of them are easy to say, and some of them get sort of stuck in the throat because they're not that easy to, you know, for us word people to utter, either because they're they're just a little kludgy, but but in the weather case, it's just uh, this is how we're going to be living. So we need to get used to things like bomb cyclones and bombogenesis and 
and derecho, which is I mean Spanish for straight. It's a straight line of clouds. It's a, just some new weather types, and I know one that you particularly uh, uh, caught into uh, flash drought. Flash drought. <laughs> yeah, I just uh, it it makes a lot of sense though. I mean, these things I think happen much more quickly. Uh, there, you know, it's about extremes, right? The climate changes that are happening have made the weather more extreme on the colds and on the rains and on the snows and on the heats. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's the, the normal is extreme weather. I think the new normal and that's that one. Yeah. That one really stuck with me. I have experienced the derechos as well here in uh, lovely New Jersey. We've had some crazy, um, crazy, crazy thunderstorms. My you know, you never would hear t- tornado watches here. You never hear about them, and we get them pretty frequently now. My my brother had had a tree come down um, because of because of one um, in Madison, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. In you know this this fall, so it's yeah, the new normal, the new extreme. Yep. Well, that's weather. Let's move on to news and sports in the weekend review. Well, there's not really any sports this week, Heather, but there is some news, and it's a lot of it's coming out of Madrid, where we have the Committee of the Parties, better known as COP, the climate conference put on by the UN this year, the 25th, COP25, as it's known. Um, what's going on out there? Ah, well, Chile was supposed to be hosting this event, and uh, because of all of those protests that have been going on over sort of social inequality and, and equity issues, they, they had to move this this event to Madrid, I think just a, just barely a month before uh, before the talk started happening. And I guess for, for me, that was actually kind of remarkable because number one, it happened so quickly, but that sort of underscores the urgency. So you know, we've, we've seen a lot of news coming out of, of it, of the event already, just a little corporate, corporate commitments, some reports where we will be writing some, some wrap ups on, on those over the the next couple weeks. But what I wanted to point to for our readers is a a good piece um, from the the folks at the World Resources Institute that just sort of sets up what you should be looking for. So as a consumer of what's coming out of of the the event, you know, what we should be thinking about and looking for and and the signals that we should see. So um, when we talk about four things, you know, I'll start us with one because and because I want to actually throw it over to you, because um, because it builds on something that happened in uh, in Poland last year at the meeting. Uh, so there was this big, I guess, the big deliverable last year when you were there. And what is it? Katowice, how do you pronounce it? Katowice. 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 Um, so in Katowice last year, they, they they adopted a big 300 page set of guidelines, but they couldn't really come to terms um, on on two things, two big things, the international carbon markets, right? So how, how they get handled, how they get set up, um, how they work and so forth to, to support the goals, the emissions reduction goals that the country set, but also the timeframes for the nationally determined um, commitments and, and, and so forth. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that from you, Joel, because you were there and, and this was a big part of last year. So what needs to happen? What are we looking for on those two things? 
Well, a lot of this is about how do we establish carbon markets. Mm. Um, that seems to be a, a, a stumbling block in terms of creating an international market to to buy and sell emissions reductions. Um, and um, that turns out to be not so easy thing to do. Um, there's a lot of issues around double counting and verification of climate uh, reductions and um, something called additionality, which is, are we just calling a reduction of something that would have happened anyway, or are we actually doing something different that would that would, that would accelerate the reduction of, of carbon dioxide or greenhouse gases? And, and those are uh, how you do this, how you, uh, what's the mechanism for, for trading, uh, how are records kept? by each country so that uh, everybody is you know, counting the same things and uh, calling the same things the same things um, and and all of that uh, this is uh, you know it's, it's sort of like we we have standards for electricity and we have standards for uh, airline or aviation takeoffs and landings and we have standard measurements of, of you know metric system and and, and things like that. And, and so we have to create a system like this for carbon. And, you know, we, we talk about carbon markets, carbon trading, carbon reductions. But when you get down to the nitty gritty, that's a lot of, of what's needed. These, these very, very small nitty gritty kinds of things. You know, and I, I think it's worth noting that even though the Trump administration is basically, you know, pulling out and, and that, that's, that those wheels are in motion, uh, there is a U.S. delegation there focused on those parts of the talks. So we do have some representation. I know Nancy Pelosi went over um, with some some Congress members and declared that we are still in. Mm -hmm. She she said mm -hmm. so. That mm -hmm. was helpful, although not surprising from from the Democratic leader of, of, in in the House. Right, right. And then the time frame thing. What what does that mean? Is it just no one? There's no agreement about how long it should take. Yeah, again, everybody's on a slightly different calendar, slightly different uh, schedule for how uh, doing these things and and aligning that uh, in the and doing it quickly because time's a wasting um, and is is another stumbling block. Uh, there's just a lot of minutia here that when you you know you can wave your arms and and declare that you're going to do something, but when you get down to it, it, it it's it's not so not so simple. There's one other aspect of, of this year's COP that I want to uh, bring forth that uh, Shauna Rappaport uh, talked about in this week's Verge weekly newsletter, which is the blue COP. Uh, this is uh, something that, uh, that the Chilean government was, was uh, spearheading and still is, even though the uh, COP conference is not in their country. Uh, but it's the, it's the first ever what's called the blue COP, elevating the protection and restoration of oceans as key to uh, the addressing the, the climate issue. I, I mean, oceans have a big role to play and are, can be uh, big victims, if you will, of, of, of the climate crisis in terms of acidification and fisheries uh, depleting and, or shifting far, farther than where, where uh, fishers can, can get them. And um, there's a lot of issues with uh, with with oceans and and they're finally being brought into this. How do you make bring oceans into the nationally determined contributions, the NDCs that you are referring to? Um, because the oceans only part of that is within uh, within 
territorial waters and the rest of its international waters. So this is another one of these commons things, the tragedy of the commons, where um, nobody's responsible and everybody owns it. Uh, and, and, and that's uh, an interesting part of this. Shauna brought forth uh, a number of, of great links and, and even some videos and things to learn more about this. Uh, if your company has anything to do with, with the marine world or is on a coast or near a coast or has suppliers on or near a coast or involved with uh, fisheries or, or um, ocean-going vessels, I mean, it's, <laughs> we're talking, by the time you get to, into it, almost uh, any large company, uh, this is a really important part of this. And, and it's just really now beginning to be addressed, and that's why the they're the blue cop and it's also something called the virtual blue cop 25 which is an online version that um, again we can link to from from uh, shauna's great piece this week yeah yeah so check out shauna's column in the on the verge uh, analysis piece that, that she does frequently well let's shift over to the world of sustainable agriculture um, our colleague john davies vice president and senior analyst attended uh, a Sustainable Agriculture Summit um, last month in Indianapolis, and uh, came back with a report, uh, sort of what's going on out there uh, as the uh, U.S. farming community uh, looks at the world of agriculture and, and what's needed to address the food uh, challenges we'll be facing and, and how agriculture fares in a climate-changing world. Yeah, and I think one of the, the big takeaways from for me, which actually is something that I've been thinking about a lot this year, is that this is such a great opportunity for the food companies to help redefine in the United States the food system and the agricultural system here. We have so many farmers that are in dire straits economically. I forget what the actual statistic is, but the bankruptcies are up by, by a, an alarming rate this year. And many of the things that we hope to achieve with regenerative agriculture take investments. And so here we have a community that's struggling economically. At the same time, they need to be making these investments. And oh, by the way, um, the average age of the, of the farming, you know, the farmer, farm owner and the farm operators is, is, is what, 65, I think? Or, or maybe it's a slightly... It's a, a, little, a little younger, but it's early 60s. Ah, they're just kids to uh, me. <laughs> one in, okay, so one in three is 65 years or older. Um, but it just, uh, one of the things that John writes about in his piece is, is um, you know, the, the fact that, that there's tons of job openings, 57,900 job openings annual for, for college graduates with experience in food and agriculture and only um, 35, four, 35,400 actually have those degrees. So there's a huge opportunity for careers in farming and for young people to get involved in this. So from a corporate perspective, I know that, that many of the food organizations that we've been talking to, General Mills, PepsiCo, you know, others, you could probably, Tyson, they, they have, they're sort of focusing in on this issue and on ways that they can work with their, I mean, this is their supply chain, right? And they need to make sure that supply chain is healthy. So it's a great, it's a great piece that sort of underscores the challenge here. Yeah. And there's, um, uh, just on that score this week, Cargill announced that they're investing $113 million in uh, Ivory Coast in Ghana, uh, a lot, a chunk of that is towards uh, sustainability and traceability programs. 
uh, which is so you can verify where, uh, in, in one case, cocoa is coming from. Is it coming from sustainable supply chains and, and all that? But, but, but back to this summit, um, one thing John didn't write about, but I, I happen to have a little insight into, is, is the food security piece that uh, is uh, and resilience in a world, again, where floods and droughts and all those weather terms we talked about earlier are happening with greater frequency. In Indiana, where this event took place, uh, one of the most agricultural uh, states in the United States, very rich soil and all of that, 95% of the roughly $17 billion spent annually for food in Indiana comes from outside its borders, comes from other states or nations. So, wow. you know, they are, they're an agricultural state, but it's, it's monocrops. It's, I don't know, it's corn and soy and things like that. Um, and, and so the, the, one of the challenges here is how do we make these systems more resilient so that Indiana and every other state can be more self-sufficient uh, in their food production? Um, and, and how do you create businesses along the way? So, for example, you know, the real money in food is not, unfortunately, in farming. It's in the, uh, the value added, the processing, packing, wholesalers, uh, and, and the f processed foods, uh, whether it's, you know, making jams or mustards or, or, or other things. Um, that's where the profit comes in. And how can um, those kinds of jobs and businesses uh, be created. Uh, that's happening uh, other parts of the Midwest. I've written in the past about Detroit and the Eastern Market and how they're trying to be, become a food center uh, for using processing as a means to create uh, jobs and businesses and, and ultimately wealth and food security. So we're going to be leaning into the food topic uh, a lot more at GreenBiz. Some announcements we'll be making probably early in 2020 about that. Uh, so uh, this continues to be a really interesting area. But let's go to one other really interesting area. And um, I'll just say two words, and uh, maybe you can take it from there. Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> what yeah. is she doing on the pages of GreenBiz? <laughs> yes, on the, on the web pages of GreenBiz. So this is a great piece that uh, our senior writer, former managing editor Elsa Wenzel uh, came across uh, that Michelle Pfeiffer is involved with a fragrance company. She is the co-founder of a company called Henry Rose. And not only is she the co-founder of this, this fragrance startup, but it's, it's one of the most circular and uh, sort of less toxic um, fragrance houses out there. And Elsa did a great piece on how this organization, this startup, worked with the Environmental Working Group, which um, does, does some, some work on the, on the toxics part of it and, and, and how the, uh, you know, how the, what the, where the, the fragrance ingredients are coming from and, and so forth, but also the cradle-to-cradle -cradle organization and, and that certification. And so it, it's a tale of how this actress, this actor, in her quest to find something that she would wear that was not going to hurt her body or the environment, um, she got involved in, in, in deciding to produce one. Um, and it's also a great tale of collaboration because in order to pull this off, they worked very closely with the International Flavors and Fragrances Company, which is this storied fragrance house that has, has had a lot of hand in ingredients. Um, pretty much every skincare product you probably pick up off the shelf in, in a drugstore or 
if you go to beauty counters in a, a department store, Joel, for your wife, uh, you know, you would find them there as well. They're, they're involved in pretty much everything. But it's a great piece on how she got involved and, and how she really worked hard and, and, and long time to get to get these products to market. And this is an area where we hadn't really seen much uh, in the area of sustainability, let alone in circularity, uh, cradle to cradle thinking. So I think this is a, a ambitious and, and uh, dare I say, groundbreaking uh, initiative by uh, Ms. Pfeiffer and her uh, her CEO Melina Polly um, to to create uh, to bring some new thinking into this area. Um, I, I like what she's doing here. I'm not a big perfume uh, fragrance person, but um, I think that the more we can uh, not just be creating these these products, but also educating the marketplace and suppliers about uh, what does it mean to to be sustainable in this area? What are some of the the ingredients, if you will, for that? And um, you know, how do we we, we think about that in the supply chain. How do we message that to customers? Does anybody really care uh, about a sustainable perfume? Uh, is that even a selling point? Uh, it'll be really interesting to watch how Henry Rose does. And so um, that's a, it's a great story and probably the first Academy Award winning uh, person we've we've had in the... <laughs> well, no, no, we've probably had Leo DiCaprio a few times on our pages as well. But um, <laughs> kudos to Elsa and um, we'll continue to watch Henry Rose. Hey everyone, Joel here. As we get ready to say goodbye to 2019 and hello to 2020... We'd love to feature your voice on an upcoming episode of Green Biz 350. Here's the deal. We'd like you to answer either or both of two questions. What was the most important lesson you learned professionally in 2019? And what's your biggest professional ambition for 2020? To participate, simply record your thoughts into the voice memo or recording function of your smartphone. Start off by introducing yourself, as in, this is Joel McCower, Executive Editor at GreenBiz, followed by your thoughts. Keep the whole thing to under 90 seconds. Then send the recording to 350 at greenbiz.com. We'll be featuring the voices of our audience on the December 20th and January 10th episodes. Again, the questions are, what was the most important lesson you learned professionally in 2019? And What's your biggest professional ambition for 2020? You can answer both if you'd like, but please record each one separately. Thanks so much. Heather and I look forward to sharing what you have to say with the Green Biz 350 audience. GreenBiz Senior Energy Analyst Sarah Golden was in Atlanta recently to attend the Green Build Conference. And while she was down there, she paid a visit to a company we haven't heard a lot about lately, Home Depot. Sarah joins me now. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Joel. So great to be here. So why'd you go? Who'd you talk to? What's going on there? Yeah, so I went to Atlanta to visit the Green Build Conference, and while I was there, I got a chance to sit down with Ron Jarvis, who's the Chief Sustainability Officer at Home Depot. And Home Depot is just a company that's been really working hard to provide more eco options for its consumers and has an interesting place in the market where it's this touch point for so many DIYers and so many homeowners and then has this platform to be able to provide more sustainable products. 
So Ron's been around there for a long time, and, and I remember writing about Home Depot and, and, and Ron uh, way back, a long time ago. And at the time, they were also leaning into eco-options. They, in fact, they had this great um, brochure pamphlet that when you walked in the store, it showed you where in the store all the various energy efficiency, weather stripping, uh, lighting, um, uh, low VOC, and other kinds of products were. And then that sort of went away. Are they coming back to that? Well, I'm not sure how much it went away in practice, but perhaps more so in trying to find which ways um, really resonate with consumers. So EcoOptions has been around since 2007. And so right now it makes up about 10% of the store's revenues that their sales are in EcoOptions. So it's been growing. It represents about $10 billion in revenues, just to give an idea of how large Home Depot's footprint really is. And recently they have added a new... um, section of their eco options, which is circular options. And so that's one of the things that really interests me in this story with all the work we do in circularity to understand how they're bringing the idea of circularity to to consumers and what it is they're buying when they walk into a Home Depot store. Well, first of all, 10 billion. Wow. Uh, That's impressive. I had no idea. That's a a great uh, start. Uh, Again, I don't know what their total revenue is, but that's still significant. So how does Home Depot plan to be a a circular economy resource? Well, they admit that they're, this is early on, that they're still figuring out how to do a lot of these things. And some of the stuff they're doing within the store itself, so like all of the plastic that they get for the stuff that's shipped to them, they then send back to then be repurposed to be new packaging materials and things like this. But they're really, they recognize that they're early on in understanding what does this actually look like. And their philosophy is the first step is to be talking about it and have transparency around it. Great. So you've got a couple of clips from the interview with Ron Jarvis. Uh, set it up for us. Yeah. So Ron walked us through what the journey has been for Eco Options and really how they're trying to get consumers to pay attention to it more. So here's Ron. We started Eco Options in 2007, um, and it was pretty simple the way we did it. We said, let's send out a note to all of our suppliers. We had about 9,000 suppliers. We said, tell us all the products that are you consider to be environmentally friendly. We're going to take all those, put them into a category. That's going to be equal options. So when customers come in saying, which are the greenest products that you have, we at least have a list we can point to. We sent it out to our suppliers. Um, at the time, we carried about 176,000 uh, SKUs, items in the stores. They came back and their list was 76,000 were green items, sustainable items. So we said, okay, this will be fairly easy. It's most of the store is green. Just change the name to Green Depot. Um, but we said we have filters for each one of these, filters for energy use, filter for water use, filter recyclability. Uh, from those 76,000, only 2,000 made our list of eco options in 2007. So we've grown that from 2,000 to over 27,000 today. We're at $10 billion in sales of eco options products. And um, it, for us, it's, it's, a, it's a strong internal program because it helps us identify products that we can put into not really a safe zone, but a zone that we know that someone has worked on, that we've worked on, that we've got criteria and indicators around those products. Um, so we consider it to be a, you know, a huge success or we wouldn't have added circular economy to it. So how are consumers responding to all this? Right. Well, Ron says that they are responding to the environmental benefits more than the labeling itself. They walk in, um, they don't want to see a sign down the plumbing aisle that says, uh, this toilet is great for the environment. They want to see a sign that says, this toilet saves you $100 a year 
and 4,000 gallons a year. And by the way, it's eco-options. So we don't lead with eco-options, we lead with the environmental attributes. And finally, Ron told me a little bit about Home Depot's journey to be pushing consumers to really be considering these products more. Some of the products have uh, more attributes that are a bigger concern to the consumers, like saving money and saving water. Uh, we find that most of our consumers um, are looking at those attributes first. If I buy this product, can I have less energy use in my store? Can I reduce my operating costs for my home on a monthly basis? Um, there are some consumers that want to know certain aspects of the products. Is this a low VOC paint? Is this from a sustainable forest? Is this not from the Amazon? Um, and for those, we put that information in different places, either on the product or uh, somewhere in the packaging or on the website, because there's a lot of folks that just, you know, go on the website and start looking for whatever the single attribute is that they're most concerned about. Um, because it's, it's interesting when you look across America, people want to do the right thing. They are concerned about environmental attributes, but you have pockets of people who focus on water savings. And so they want to know for the products, what type of water savings it has. We put that information on the websites and places like that where they can find it. Well, that sounds great. Home Depot comes full circle. Sarah Golden is Senior Energy Analyst at GreenBiz. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me. This week, I braved the snowy weather in New York to travel in for the third annual SASB Symposium hosted by the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. Here to chat with me for Green Biz 350 is the brand new CEO of the organization, Janine Gilliatt. Janine, welcome to Green Biz 350. Thank you. So, a month in, okay. So, I, I'm, I'm wondering if you had any specific goals with this symposium that were maybe a little bit different than in the past. Can you share that and, and just sort of who's here and, and what you've learned from your initial conversations so far? Yeah, so one of the things we do at this symposium that, that I really love is we try to bring together a variety of perspectives. So we try to have people representing a company perspective, an investor perspective, regulators, accountants, lawyers, um, and really, really try to create cross-company cross dialogue or cross-sector dialogue. So we really enjoy doing that. I think one thing we're really focused on this year is sharing more of the European perspective um, because there's active discussion in Europe about regulation and how regulation should evolve. And that partic particularly, I think, could set um, global precedent. So we really want to make sure we share that with the audience here in New York. Yeah, so in, in Europe, yeah, they're talking about sort of um, involuntary, you know, d directives to do yeah. this. And in the United States, it is still pretty, I mean, it is voluntary it is in the United voluntary. States. Uh, and when I first came to the symposium a couple of years ago, there were very few companies that were reporting using the standards. Now you said uh, this morning that there are more than 100. Can you sense, give us, you know, a sense of the industries that are part of that? Are there, there are clusters of industries that are, that are joining? Yeah, so I think there are definitely some industries that are proving to be the earliest adopters of the SASB standards. We see a significant concentration in the real estate industry. And I think one reason for that is that you know, the metrics in the real estate industry 
tend to be things that the industry has tracked and measured for a long time. Things like energy usage and waste and water, which are things that have been business drivers in that industry for a long time. So I think the the real estate industry had high quality data already available on some of those metrics, which makes it easier for them to be early adopters. I think the other industry where we're starting to see a significant concentration is oil and gas. And I think that's definitely a reaction to investor interest in that sector. And one of the comments that was made in, in a session today was was that, you know, we need to be more aggressive in the United States about talking these up and, and talking about the need for them. So why do you think that, that these industries are jumping in while others aren't? I mean, what, what needs to change in the dialogue here? Has, has the task force on climate-related financial disclosure really changed anything? Is that changing the dialogue? Well, I think the biggest thing that will change the dialogue is investor demand. So if you think about the way we think about uh, what ultimately will drive adoption of the SASB standards, we see uh, three key uh, levers. One is investor demand and investor interest in these topics. The second is companies really finding value in and the standards as a tool to communicate to their investors. And then the third, of course, is regulators. And we definitely, historically, and it's because we're a market-based organization, have prioritized the investor demand lever. And I think investors really coming to believe these issues are financially material, they impact business performance, and they do that across all sectors, I think that is ultimately what will drive use of the standards. So survey fatigue and standards fatigue and, you know, reporting fatigue continues to be an issue and, and, and for, for good reason. Yeah. So what, what are you doing um, to help align your standards with others? I know you, you've been working with the Global Reporting Initiative for a long time um, yeah. as an organization. Tell us about the progress of that and how we're, align we're seeing alignment. Yeah, so I think, first of all, I think it's really important when you talk about the space to know that there are different tools for different purposes and different audiences. So I think really at the end of the day, this is a communication strategy question uh, for companies. What, what audience are you trying to communicate to and what's the tool that best meets their needs? And so I don't think we'll ever get to a world where there's just this one single reporting framework. But I do think what we should aim for is a world where there are fewer frameworks and they're more closely aligned and they use common metrics wherever possible. So our work with GRI is very much focused on GRI as a stakeholder impact framework. And GRI is very much around communicating a company's impact on the external world. SASB is about communicating how the external world impacts a company's financial performance. So those are different but complementary views. And most of the companies, many of those companies, the 100 adopters of SASB, have done that by having a SASB reference table in a GRI sustainability report. So that then meets two needs. It meets uh, a need to communicate about stakeholder impact and a need to communicate to investors in a single report. Uh, what we are doing with GRI and also with CDP is mapping our metrics. And we very much want to try to use common metrics across those frameworks wherever possible. Mm -hmm. 
Now, there was also an observation made that as, as these become more widely adopted, that disclosure will become, you know, so common, potentially, yeah. that we would need fewer standards uh, and that there would be more data available. So, like, yeah. we, we see these ratings, um, we see the consolidation in the ratings industry, we see some of these research organizations consolidating. Um, that makes me just think about the role of technology in this, yeah. right? So. Um, as a geek myself, I'm just curious about the role of data analytics and, and artificial intelligence, machine learning on helping actually with that process and with maybe feeding some of those um, reports, especially with the common metrics. What role do you see technology playing in helping aid that? Yeah, so I think technology is going to play a huge role. Uh, and the way to think about technology, I think, in this space is through the lens of structured data and unstructured data. So structured data would be similar to the way we think of traditional financial data, metrics, um, very structured and and ensuring that that structured data can be consumed in as automated a fashion as possible. And at least in the US, we have a lot of progress around that um, with SEC reporting and Edgar. So I think there's the, and there's progress on that around the world. So I think how that that structured data can be consumed in an automated way is one way to think about this. On the AI side, the artificial intelligence side, that's where unstructured data comes in. And there are already firms using artificial intelligence to comb you know, everything that's published about a company, either by a company or about a company, and then to try and consume that data attach things like sentiment tags to it and ultimately roll that up into ratings or a view of a company. So there's no question that AI is going to change how the analytical process works um, and, and really gives investors whole new tools. Your uh, background is as a CPA, and uh, I, I mentioned you were the new CEO of the organization of SASB, but you've been with the organization for a while. Um, so I think this is not a bad question. Um, what's your top priority for 2020? <laughs> that is a great question. Um, we are focused, well, we have, we have several priorities, of course, but we are definitely focused on continuing to um, drive adoption of the SASB standards globally. That is, that is our highest priority. And I think you heard it on one of the panels this morning, what we need is higher adoption rates, ultimately to feed more consistent information into this entire ecosystem that supports decision making. So I think that's a top priority. Um, but another priority that I think is really important is to continue to evolve the standards. So, you know, we know the standards that were the result of six years of research, but they're not perfect. And this is a field that is moving extremely rapidly. And so how do we continue to be responsive to feedback, market feedback on the standards, and how do we continue to evolve them? On Monday this week, the CEOs of 75 U.S. companies, along with the AFL-CIO, signed a letter affirming their support of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, saying that it, quote, enables us to plan for a just transition and create new, decent, family-supporting jobs and economic opportunity. They called for greater, more accelerated action. One of the signatories was Ginny Romady, CEO of IBM, and joining me now is Wayne Balta, IBM's Vice President of Corporate Environmental Affairs. Hey, Wayne. Hello, Joel. 
So what's behind this for IBM? Why did Ms. Ramadi sign this letter? It really goes back to IBM's uh, history of involvement regarding climate change and IBM's uh, bias for action to deal with it. So if you look back historically at what IBM's been involved with, as early as 1992, IBM helped the U.S. EPA launch Energy Star. 1994, IBM began to voluntarily disclose the greenhouse gas emissions associated with its consumption of energy and has been doing that every year since. What is that, 26 years now? Uh, in 2007, IBM published a formal position on climate change calling for meaningful action to address it. And so in more recent years, Joel, in 2015, when the Obama administration had launched something called the American Business Act on Climate Pledge, IBM was one of the first wave of companies to support that as a means of showing support to go to Paris to negotiate the agreement we now know as the Paris Agreement. Two years subsequent to that, in 2017, uh, we at IBM, I personally authored it, published a statement saying we advocate for the United States to remain a party to the Paris Agreement. And so now, yet another two years later, as the UN Conference of the Parties meets on climate change, and as the Paris Agreement remains topical in the news, this was an opportunity for Ginny to reinforce what IBM had previously made clear uh, in many different ways, namely that IBM supports meaningful action to address climate change, and the Paris Agreement is an appropriate way for the United States to be a party at the table to do exactly that. So the stakes seem to be higher now in terms of both what we're seeing happening with the climate and some of the impacts on Earth and humans, but also the political climate, at least in the United States, and also in in some other countries. And of course, IBM is is a global corporation. I guess is there? Do you see any significance now of this moment in time in terms of corporate advocacy and what's really needed by companies on the climate issue? I do. Uh, I personally see a, a tremendous opportunity at this moment in time in front of us. And that's a part of the reason why yesterday, in addition to Ginny having signed the statement you referenced, we at IBM also yesterday uh, published a piece in which we clearly expressed support for a price on carbon as a matter of public policy. And we had endorsed the plan put forth by the Climate Leadership Council to put a price on carbon via a carbon tax with carbon dividend. So that's something, Joel, that we at IBM made clear just yesterday. Uh, and it reflects what you said. Perhaps we are at a moment in time where we can find what I personally and regrettably see as having escaped us, and that is the ability to find agreement on a common cause down the middle with which a majority of people can get behind.
Yeah, I was going to bring up that uh, letter, which you personally signed, I see. And the uh, plan that you endorsed calls for an uh, economy-wide $40 a ton fee on, on carbon dioxide emissions and increasing 5% above inflation every year. Um, that's going from sort of the, I'm pardon this, apple pie, which is that we must take care of the climate, to sort of political controversy uh, in terms of, at least in the United States, the, the state of play in, 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 in the political world around climate change. Is there any risk here for IBM in taking a stand on something that you know, goes against certainly the, the Trump administration, given the uh, Trump administration's tendency to be a little bit vindictive? There is always a risk to things like this. But again, going back to what you said, with so much of the world's focus on climate change and the need for action, we decided it was the right time to express ourselves in the interest of opportunity. And I believe that the plan articulated by the Climate Leadership Council represents one which gives us collectively the greatest chance to see societal agreement on a way to move forward with getting this externality priced and reflecting the cost of carbon emissions in the price of energy. So I think, Joel, you know, at, at each end of the political spectrum, you know, to use the common parlance on the far left and the far right, there may be people with points of view who, who disagree or dislike uh, a company like IBM speaking out on this. But ideally, we speak to the vast majority in and around the center or the middle whose buy-in we all need to cause change to occur. And so we're hopeful that that vast majority can look at this and say, it may not be everything what I want, uh, uh, but it's enough and I can understand other points of view and agree for the interest of moving forward. So you talked about collective action, at least in the part of the Climate Leadership Initiative. Uh, what's your ask, or maybe it's a challenge, of other companies who haven't yet stepped up, spoken up on this issue? Well, I, it would, I don't want to be... I don't want to come across as presumptuous in challenging others per se. I would um, say it as encouraging others to think about it in a similar way, not to say they already haven't, and to come forward and say, you know what? Carbon emissions are a negative externality. They do place a cost upon society for people who didn't choose to incur the cost in a market economy with a negative externality that has a big impact, you need to reflect that cost in the price of energy. Doing so via a carbon tax will cause energy companies to innovate and lessen emissions in the interest of low carbon, and it should cause consumers to direct their consumption towards less carbon-intensive sources. And if we can get that tax implemented across the market-based economy, then that will collectively move us in a horizontal way across all of the economy in the way that we need to address the risk of climate change. So rather than challenging per se, I would say uh, to others who have not yet expressed their point of view to be encouraged by this and to follow suit.
And by the way, others have gone before us. So, you know, we're not the first one necessarily uh, to have spoken out on this. But hopefully it's a sign that, you know, it's time for leadership companies to express uh, a way to reach agreement. Wayne Valta is the Vice President of Corporate Environmental Affairs at IBM. Thanks so much, Wayne. It is my pleasure. Thanks for asking me, Joe. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish five different ones every week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. And we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you.